Uh, would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28? We'll read verses 16 through 20. Our meditation will be from verse 20. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Father, we first of all pray for our children as they're in children's worship and ask that your Spirit may move in their midst and that you may draw them to salvation. Our greatest desire, O God, is that they will put their trust in you And so we ask that you might do that. And for us, we pray that you would uh, teach us as we seek to meditate upon your word. We pray that you'll instruct us and guide us and uh, help us to understand how we might be engaged in fulfilling the Great Commission, that we might equip each other to love and serve you more. Would you do this for Jesus' sake? Amen. I talk about it at different times. It's no surprise for most of us who are a part of Providence and been here very long that each year um, I I begin praying early in the year and and thinking about the congregation and and watching what the needs are. And uh, summer I get really in earnest. I begin to think about uh, what would be the theme for the next year's preaching ministry so that we've, we've got something that kind of ties everything together and, and what is the purpose. And uh, last year, if you remember, the theme was heading home as we spent a great deal of time looking at the the concept of heaven and and the reality of heaven and what that will mean for us and what it means is we're we're here on this earth but we're living for heaven and trying to keep heaven always in our eyes as we uh, walk through this world. And this year is is in in one sense, it's kind of a follow-up to that idea uh, in that, okay, we're not there yet, right? We're not in heaven. So what? So what do we do now? And what we do now is quite simple. We follow Jesus. And that's our theme for this year, to follow Jesus. Partly because that's what what Jesus said to do time after time after time after time. I mean, how many people did he come up to and and say, you need to follow me? As a matter of fact, Matthew 16, 24, um, after uh, he's had the great confession from Peter, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, he goes on to say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, right? That's what it is to, to come after Jesus. You're going to have to follow him. And so we're going to take some time this year. The first part of the year, uh, I'm spending on, on a number of key verses in which the, the idea of follow me is explicitly stated. And we'll start that uh, the first week of February. And then in uh, April, we'll begin looking at uh, the book of Hebrews. And I'll explain why Hebrews fits into this uh, at, at, uh, under that theme. And so we'll, we'll do that at another time. But I thought we would start out with Jesus' great commission, kind of, if you will, his, his marching orders that he gave to the church as he was getting ready to leave this planet. He says, hey, guys, here's what I want you to do. And he gathered everybody around and he gave them this, this great commission, which is the purpose of the church. And we talk about the purpose of Providence Presbyterian Church. It's taken from the great commission. In 2013, we began to rework the the vision to write it out in a a clearer fashion, more understandable. But as we were doing so, we didn't spend any time at all discussing and debating the purpose of the church because Jesus gave it to us, right? He said, what's the purpose? To make disciples. This is what we're here to do, to make disciples. 
But within that then, we've got, uh, he, he gives us a, a context. What's the context in which he gives us the Great Commission to make disciples? The context is verse 16 and 17. First of all, he gives the Great Commission to the disciples, to disciples of Jesus. And secondly, he does it within the context of worship. So from that, we see that we are to live as disciples and we're to live as worshipers if we're to fulfill the purpose. And in last week, we saw, as he begins to get into how we go about making disciples, that we do it first off by evangelizing. And we looked at the whole concept of, of uh, baptism and its tie to evangelism. And this week, we're going to see we also do that by equipping each other. Our vision, you'll see the similarities, is that we want to see every man, woman, and child in the world trusting in Jesus Christ. To do that, we'll engage in relationships with people who are new to us. That's kind of an evangelism. We want to begin to build these relationships. Not all of them will be evangelistic, but we want to have those relationships with people who don't even know the Lord yet. And so we engage in those relationships. Secondly, we equip each other to love and serve Jesus Christ. This is really the issue of the teaching ministry of the church. And that's the primary focal point of the, the second E, to equip. The third is that we will um, empower one another to own and expand our ministries. So how shall we equip each other? I believe that this passage will give us a couple different ways in which we can do that. The first way is that we're, if we're going to equip each other, we're going to have to be purposeful. To be purposeful, to have a purpose in what we're doing. Um, Daniel Pink wrote a book entitled Drive, and no one in the first service that had read it. Has anybody here read Drive by Daniel Pink? Great leadership book, great management book, um, really, really helpful. I listened to an interview of Daniel Pink years ago, and so I picked up the book and began to read it. And I began to see that uh, part of his thinking came from the idea, he began to compare uh, Encarta with Wikipedia. Everybody, anybody remember Encarta? Right? Kind of, right? Oh, <laughs> of course, Lauren. <laughs> and Carta was this great idea of, I think it was Microsoft, who said, you know, we're going to get all these great minds, we're going to pay all this money, and we're going to create this, this, this online uh, um, encyclopedia, right? And it'll be great. And they had all this money. And you notice how few of us remember Encarta? But do you remember Wikipedia? Right? Hardly a day goes by that you don't have to read Wikipedia, right? And Wikipedia is entirely free. And it's all volunteer. And he wondered, how in the world did Encarta not succeed, but Wikipedia did? And he began to look at that. He began to understand, money doesn't always motivate. He began to find that, in fact, sometimes money can give disincentive to people really being creative and doing their best work. That you have these extrinsic motivators, such as punishment and reward, and those are things that are outside, so I get rewarded if I do it and punished if I don't, and we think that's how you motivate people, but it just doesn't work. It doesn't work at all if you want them to do more complex things. What does motivate people? And Pink goes through and he finds and he, he names these three intrinsic motivators. The first is autonomy. And that is, I'm motivated by um, the ability to work on my own. Okay, the greatest love of every employee is being micromanaged, right? We hate being micromanaged. We hate it with all of our heart because we want that autonomy. We want to be able to make those decisions and have that freedom to accomplish the task, right? And so that motivates us. The second is mastery. Am I actually given the tools by which I can be really good at my job? Can I master this task which is before me? 
And the third, the foundation, if you will, is purpose. Does it matter? We hate busy work, right? I want my work to be of substance. I want it to accomplish something of value. Now, this is really important for me as a pastor who's working with a congregation. It's almost entirely volunteer uh, staffed, right? And what is it that's going to motivate you to work in the church? It's if you have autonomy, you're able to master it, and you have purpose. And we got purpose running out the, the, the windows, right? Purpose in the church is great. We want to see souls saved. That's what we're about. That's great purpose, and that motivates us. But it's a purpose. It's a goal that begins to move us forward. We see that there's a reason for it. Which turns my attention then to Jonathan Edwards. Remember Jonathan Edwards? He was a 30-year-old pastor when the Great Awakening began in his church. Right? What an amazing place in history to find yourself. That you're in this place where the greatest revival in the history of America started in your church. And it didn't just happen. I believe that it happened directly tied to a choice he made as a young man to establish certain resolutions that he would take in his life. We'll read those together. And he starts out the resolutions by saying, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. He will remember to read over these resolutions once a week. I just want to look at three of them. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure. And those aren't separate things. They're all connected. If it's to God's glory, it's to his own profit. Second, or sixth, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. This is one that really uh, appeals to me as my, my cardinal virtue. First one is passion. And I think he puts it far better than I could ever imagine, that I want to live with all of my might. Whatever I do, I want to put everything into it. And I love that. And the 17th is, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Isn't that profound? That when he comes to the end of his life, he wants to be able to look back at the way that he lived and said, yeah, that's how I should have done it. You see, he made these resolutions when he was a young man. And I believe that by making these resolutions and by weekly putting them before his face and meditating upon them, and then therefore making choices based on these resolutions, he was made by God into the man who could preach the message that would light the fire of the Great Awakening. That it was that purpose that he had as he wrote it out in his resolution, this is what I'm committed to. And it is that purpose, and as he lived for that purpose, he was able to see the result in a revival hitting the American soil like has never been seen before or since. Because he's living for that purpose. And that's what affected what he was doing. It wasn't an accident that brought success. It was purpose. We look at our passage, verse 20, and we're to be teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Teaching them. That is to say purposefully choosing to inculcate information and exhortations to the people around us. 
to do that on purpose. And there are three ways that we can teach that I want us to, to look at that we see from, from the New Testament to understand what this type of teaching will take place in our lives. How do we teach? The first is we're going to teach by living as an example. To live as an example. First off, in, in Titus chapter 2, Titus is a book that Paul wrote to uh, a, a pastor. And in chapter 2, verse 2, he says to this pastor, he said, Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. What's he saying? He's saying that the older men, the elders, are to have a certain example that they live for the rest of the flock, right? There's a certain way in which they ought to live, and he calls on them to do that. And he turns in verse 2, and he turns the attention to the older women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to wine, And how does he summarize all that? Teaching what is good. That as they live that life, they will be teaching what is good. That the example of the older men, the example of the older women, will be teaching the younger men and the younger women what is good. It is a way of instructing in what is good. And let's be honest, we all need that, right? We all need that good example. Have you ever seen someone, it's like, you know, that person really inspires me. I love how they're kind in all their words. That really means something to me. I'm inspired by that. I want to live that out. They've, by their example, they've now taught me something to teach by example. I mean, we see it in, in the Old Testament as well. Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the great Shema passage. This uh, passage that uh, the Israelites would say to one another uh, every, every morning. It starts out, uh, verse 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And verse 6, These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. These words which he's commanding him, he just went over in chapter 5, the chapter before, he went over the Ten Commandments. And he's reminding them, it's the law of God. He's telling them, this is what God has commanded. And what is, are they supposed to do? First off, these words are supposed to be on your heart. The first thing he says is you've got to, first of all, bring them into you. And once you bring them into you, then you can move on to verse 7, which says, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. A part of the responsibility, first of all, we bring that, that message inside us, and then we are to teach them to our children. And we're to teach them diligently, that we are to instruct our children. There is what I call a catechetical element of our instruction of our children, that we walk them through the doctrines of our church. We tell them, this is what the Word of God says. We teach them the Bible stories, not so that they learn cute stories, but so that they learn the Word of God. We teach them diligently, but that isn't the end. And then he goes on to say, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Can you think of anywhere else? I mean, he could have said, and when you brush your teeth, and when you comb your hair, and when you tie your shoes, right? And that all is, is covered within that. It's all the time that we're talking about them, that, that the conversation of our lives, that the words that are coming out of our mouth in every situation is going to be about God and about His Word, and we're just constantly, so that we're bringing it into all of our life, we're living this example. But then he goes on, And he says in verse 8, And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gate. So all of this that that Moses is talking about, he's saying that we're, we're to teach them diligently, we're supposed to talk about them all the time, and then he says we're to put them on our hand and on our forehead. Is he just talking about that, you know, we need a watch that says Jesus loves you, and maybe a tattoo on our forehead? Is that what he's talking about all of a sudden? 
Is that going to, I mean, is he, is he all of a sudden just talking about all we need is these symbols? No, 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 no. When he says you want it on your hand, it means as your hands are working, are they working for Christ? Are you giving an example with your, with your hands of what it is to follow Christ? As you're thinking, it is, as your children come to understand what's going on inside your mind and right in front of your eyes, are you having the Word of God continually there in your mind and before your face so that it's all that's taking place in your life is the Word of God? Is it, is it upon the, the doorpost of your house so that as you walk out or come in, it's all about Jesus Christ? That's the command that's there, to teach by example, to live it before our children. What is it that we're to teach by our lives? What's the example that we're to give? I mean, we could go into an awful lot of stuff, right? I want to look at, 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 at simply, I want to live as an example of the Christian life, right? And there are three things that I want to suggest that that will include. And the first one is that I'm going to accept my sins, my failures, and my weaknesses. I think that's the starting point of the Christian life. Now, it's really easy for us to think about the example of the Christian life is we've got to get it right. Do you remember in the 70s and 80s how the, the big phrase, maybe early 90s, is you, you, you wanted to be sure to, to not damage your testimony, Right? Those of you who've been Christians for a while will remember that kind of terminology and we're worried about our testimony and we've got to protect our testimony. And, and I look at that now and I think that really led to a wrong idea. Maybe it was led from a wrong idea of what it means to live an example. The Christian faith is not do it right all the time, is it? Right? I don't think I see that in Scripture. As Paul talks about the gospel, what's the first thing that he says in Roman, or, uh, 1 Corinthians 15? This is the gospel, that Christ did what? Died for our sins, right? So what is the very first thing that we contribute to the gospel? Sin. Yeah, that's it. That's where it begins. That's what we provide, right? And he provides the righteousness. He provides the forgiveness. So if I'm going to live out the Christian life and live out what it means to believe in Jesus, it starts by saying, I'm going to accept my sins, my failures, and my weaknesses without any fear. One of the easiest things for a Christian to say should be, I'm sorry, right? And frankly, given our understanding of depravity, it should be pretty common, right? Because, because we do fail. We do choose to not follow after God. And so that's the first thing, is to accept our sins, failures, and weaknesses. But then secondly, the second aspect of our example is we need to have an example of being fully devoted to Jesus Christ. The idea of a private Christianity is one that is foreign to the Word of God. That I have my faith, I, I just don't tell anyone about it, I just keep it a secret. I don't, need to, I don't need to communicate that. No, 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 no. Jesus makes it very clear. We're to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. That there is this, this act that takes place. I love it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says he bids us come and die. And so we're giving ourselves completely over to Jesus Christ, and it's all about Him. Men, when you're at work, do you ever talk about your bride? If not, you may want to repent of that. <laughs> but of course. Why? Because I love her. You see, I'm at work and I'm talking about my wife. I just want to give that example. That's, that's what we do. Um, but, but, but we talk about the person that we love. What, talk about Jesus. Why? Because we love him. He's our life. Of course I'm going to talk about him, not as some, some great burden. Oh, I've got to do that again. No, 
It's just the greatest joy of my life. There's nothing better than Jesus. He comes into everything, and so I'm going to talk about him all the time because I'm totally devoted to him. And that's what it is to live the example of the Christian life, that I'm going to accept my sins, my, my failures, and my weaknesses, and I'm going to be devoted to Jesus. And finally, I'm going to seek to serve. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, before he served the bread and the cup to the disciples, he walked in and he heard them all fussing with each other about who's going to be first in the kingdom. He walks out of the room, he comes back in with a towel and a basin filled with water, and he kneels down in front of Peter and starts to wash his feet. And then he says, if I, the Lord and Master, can wash your feet, so you should serve one another. And he gave us an example of the Christian life. Not to wash feet, literally, but to serve one another. That it's a part of our our Christianity to be servants, to find ways in which we can be a benefit in the lives of other people. To live as examples of what it is to be a Christian, to accept our sins, failures, and weaknesses, to be devoted to Jesus, and to seek to serve. That's our first way in which we teach, to live as an example. The second way in which we teach is to use significant conversations. To use significant conversations. I remember years ago, uh, Robin, Michael, and I uh, went through a class on something called XEE. It was Evangelism of Explosion, but updated to today. And instead of looking at opportunities to share the whole EE outline, um, it's, it, it prompts you each week to ask, have I had significant conversations with someone in the last week? A significant conversation, something of substance. And I like that. And I think of that when I think of Acts chapter uh, 8, 26 through 36. It's a, it's a lengthy passage, so bear with me. Um, but it's, it's somewhat familiar, and it should move along pretty quickly. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. That is a desert road. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of Ethiopia, of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up. I love that. Right? He agreed with Jonathan Edwards. He said, I'm going to do it with all my power. So he said, go up. I'm running up. And so he runs up. And he he runs up and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so does He does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation, for his life is removed from the earth? The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water! What prevents me from being baptized? Isn't that a wonderful story? It's, it's, even in just meditating on it, um, uh, I was thinking, ooh, I should preach this sometime. I, I see four significant points about evangelism that we can draw from this. As, as, uh, and I'm sorry, it's, it's a sermon within a sermon. So you get double your money's worth today. It's uh, special, no extra cost. Uh, but what does he do in this significant conversation? Notice he didn't just see the, the um, 
chariot, get out his bullhorn, and start preaching, right? But he did something else. And the first thing he did was, you, you, you have to pray for opportunities. Verse 26 or 29, we see the Spirit of God coming to him and saying, you need to head over here. And what does he do in the Spirit's prompting? He does precisely what the Spirit prompted him to do, right? And when he does, he sees the chariot, and then he goes up and he begins to engage in that relationship. You see, I believe that he had this mindset that he was looking for opportunities. He was looking to see if God was going to open up opportunities for him to talk to someone about Jesus. This so reminds me of uh, Bob Scott. Um, Scotty was a, a mentor of mine in my second year of ministry and uh, had a tremendous influence on me. Um, I loved the fact that he had been in ministry longer than I'd been alive. And uh, Scotty, uh, would, we'd go out weekly to uh, Perkins for pie and coffee because Scotty liked pie. I don't know if you remember that about him, but uh, uh, it was a, a wonderful thing. And, and every week when we would finish meeting, Scotty would pray, and one of his requests was always, Lord, would you provide an opportunity today for us to talk to someone about Jesus? And I will never forget that prayer. And I love that prayer. And I want to pray that prayer regularly. Lord, will you provide the opportunity? If you pray that prayer, I believe you'll become aware when those opportunities come. And so we begin to pray. We ask for opportunity. The second thing we do is we need to ask questions. In verse 30, you see him walking up to the, the chariot, and he doesn't walk up and say, Ooh, let me tell you what you're doing. Right? He doesn't walk up and say, Hey, here's what you're doing wrong. Fix it. What does he do? He walks up, he says, What you doing? Do you understand what you're reading? What if the man had said, well, of course, it's telling me all about Jesus. Would have changed the conversation, wouldn't it? But he asked questions, and he asked questions not to give the other guy an opportunity to speak. Have you been in those types of conversations where the person asks you a question, but it's just giving you an opportunity to speak? They're not really listening. Have you ever been guilty of that? Yeah, I'm afraid so. But he asked a question to listen. And he heard specifically what this man was asking. Because the man said, who is this talking about? And then he told him about Jesus, right? He answered the specific question that was given to him. Take the time to ask questions. And then explain Jesus. He's everywhere in scripture. You don't have to force him in. He's there. If you just open up the scripture, you'll see him. Explain Jesus. And then... Expand the conversation according to the listener. I'm, I'm fascinated by verse 36. How in the world did they get onto baptism? That's not from Isaiah, right? I believe somehow in the conversation, he taught him about baptism. It's where the conversation went. And so he allowed the conversation to go where it went. I'm sure Robin remembers a Bible study that we led uh, of college group back uh, even before I went into seminary. That's absolutely my favorite Bible study I've ever been involved in. It was just a wonderful group. And we're going through this uh, life of Jesus from a navigator study. And as we're going through it, um, it took us months to go through each chapter that was supposed to be a one week. Um, because the, there were just questions that were raised, just issues that folks wanted to talk about. And they said, well, this is important. Well, what about this? And how about this? And we just spent all this time going through this study. And I called it a springboard study, that it just was a springboard. Where we'd land, we had no idea whatsoever, but we were going to take it. And, and it turned out to be just a, a, a wonderful study. Be willing to do that. And then you're using significant conversations to talk to people about that which is interesting in their life. Live as an example, use significant conversations. And third way to teach is to offer lessons. To offer lessons. Sometimes 
we actually have to teach line upon line, precept upon precept. Uh, the women's Bible studies have just finished up uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount. And as they went through the Sermon on the Mount, they, they saw Jesus' teaching. In, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, we read that he opened his mouth and began to teach. And then he taught. He w- wasn't a discussion-oriented lesson. He was preaching a message. Verse 29, for he was teaching them as one having authority not as their scribes. It was authoritative teaching. Sometimes we're called upon to give such authoritative teaching. It's something that we do need to do. It's one of the third way, three ways that we can teach. Example, significant conversation, and then to offer lessons. How do we do that? Well, let me give you some opportunities with uh, children. I told you I was going to talk about this. Sunday school. Sunday school is a great opportunity for you to teach lessons to our children. You may think, well, I don't know what to say. We have a curriculum that will help you with that. It does a fantastic job. It's very much geared toward making sure that the teacher is prepared and able to teach the lesson. It does a wonderful job. Would you like to invest in our children? You can contact Daryl, and he'll he'll take names. I mean, if you you feel the call, it's kind of a reverse altar call. You can go back and and give him your name now. That will be all right. Um, Children's worship is another opportunity to teach, right? Vacation Bible School is the third. These are ways in which we can teach our children and can instruct them uh, in the lessons. uh, And Providence Kids is uh, a fourth way. What about ways to teach the adults? Because children, let's face it, they're terrifying, right? I'm, I'm scared of kids. How do I teach children? Oh, no, this could be really hard. Teaching adults, that's easy. Why don't we do that? And so there are several different ways in which you can do that. One is you can engage it with the crew. Right? You can try to find ways that you can engage with them. Oh, uh, Sunday school as well, adult Sunday school. Um, what about small groups? Another opportunity um, toward Christian maturity. Well, I haven't heard of that one. Well, you will. Um, hopefully, by next fall, we'll see this going. And the idea is that we'll have small groups where you have one mentor um, and uh, then some other students going along, two to four. And we'll be going through the uh, lessons, and each week we'll be dealing with a, a different topic. The idea is that there are four segments to this. Each segment will be broken up with a little bit of a break. And the first segment is uh, uh, devotional life, a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what it takes for a person who's, who's uh, brand new in the faith to be able to grow into a mature Christian, is they need to understand how to have a personal devotional life with Christ. And the second is how do you worship and serve within the context of a, a church community? The third is evangelism. How do I tell other people about Jesus? The fourth is, how do I help someone become a disciple maker? And the fifth is, what is theology? What does that have to do with it? And so as we go through these five different sections, we're able to grow into Christian maturity because let's face it, particularly in the Reformed community, we have a tendency to do a a freestyle method of uh, Christian growth, right? We just figure folks will catch it one way or another. And we're getting parts from all over the place, and we've got to try to bring it together to systematically say we start from A and we move to Z. And to be able, I'm sorry, from Alpha and we move to Omega, because that makes it biblical. We, 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 we want to have a more of a purpose. And so that's another way that you can be involved. And maybe God's laying it on your heart and said, I'd love to be a mentor, or I'd love to go through that. Um, let me know about that. You see, these are opportunities that we have to offer lessons. Because we need to be purposeful in teaching. But beyond purposeful, we also have to reach for the goal. To reach for the goal. Look at verse 20 again. Teaching them what? Teaching them all that I've commanded you? Is that what he says? 
It's not exactly, is it? I mean, those words are all there. But he says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. I'm reminded by this of uh, Dr. Henry Krabendam, one of my professors in seminary, who would tell us about preaching, that you need to preach to the will through the mind. Too much of our preaching is to the mind, and we ignore the will. Some is just preaching to the will, and we ignore the mind. Some is just preaching to the emotions, and we ignore everything else. But I think the scripture calls on us to preach to the will through the mind, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. The word observe, I want to read to you a little bit from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Don't be intimidated by that, it's okay. Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, talking about the word that's translated observe, tereo, says this, it says, the basic meaning of this word is to keep in view, to note, to watch over. It takes on such nuances as to rule, to observe, to ward off, to guard, to keep, and in a transferred sense, to see to, to apply oneself to, to defend oneself. The word occurs 39 times in the Septuagint, which is the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, in such senses as to aim at, to keep watch, to pay attention, to watch over or for, to keep, to observe. Now, why do I go through all that? I want you to get a, a little bit of a sense of the richness of this word and what it means to observe all that I commanded you. It's not just to look at it. It means, as many translations will have, to obey, to put it into practice. All that he's commanded, what has he commanded us to? Can you imagine how many imperatives there are in the Gospels from Jesus? How many times does he command us to stuff? And there's a lot. And how do I deal with that? Well, you wrestle with the same thing. We talked, I think it was last week, uh, about the re- two weeks ago, about the regulative principle of worship. And that is we do only those things that God has commanded us to do in worship. And we get so caught up in all of the different little details of that that we, we lose sight of what the regulative principle would mean. We can lose sight of it when we look at, well, look at all of the different commands. How do we, how do we make it more manageable? That's where categories are helpful. And there are two categories that I think Jesus gives us to understand all that he's commanded us. And the first is he's commanded us to love God. Most of you are now ready to fill in the second line, right? You, you've got it now. Okay, love God. I know where he's going with this. So to love God. We see that in, in Matthew chapter 22 uh, when he's asked the question, um, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's it. That's the first one. That's the greatest commandment. That's the first thing, to love God. That's where we start, to love God. How do I do that? How do I love God? Well, I think ordinarily I love people who love me. I know it's kind of shallow, but it's a reality. I like people who like me. I don't like people who don't like me. And it seems kind of right, but it's kind of not, right? And that doesn't work then, you know, how does that work with my relationship with God? Well, with him it works perfectly. Because we love because he first loved us, right? Yeah. Why do I love him? Because he loved me. How am I going to love him more? You know, maybe by embracing his love for me. Maybe by taking the time and really allowing his love for me to sink in. And I hope it's okay, Tori, and and if not, you'll just have to throw something at me later on. But you gave a a tremendous witness of that reality as you talked about your dad and what he did. You failed, but it didn't matter. He loved you, and it drew you to his heart, did it not? That's exactly what happens in our relationship with, with Jesus Christ, as we stop and realize he didn't reject us. 
But He loves us. And as we can take the time to meditate on that reality and allow that to sink in and to really permeate our lives and to recognize how much He loves us, our love for Him will become deeper and deeper and deeper. Go to that place. Spending time alone with Him. I'm going to skip a couple slides just so Chris knows. Um, To spend time just alone with Him, to be still. How do you feel about silence? We were in seminary. There was a Christian radio station that had this ad. And he said, wait a moment. And it was silence for 10 seconds. 10 seconds on the radio is, is just huge. And then it came back and said, if that made you uncomfortable, you need to draw closer to Jesus. It's like, amen. Amen. To be still, alone with him, and okay with that aware of his love. That's how it begins, to love God. But not just to love God, but also to love people. Here it's going to help us to define the word love. Love is an unconditional commitment to the highest good of another. I need to love people with an unconditional commitment to their highest good, which means I need to initiate that relationship. Isn't that a part of the unconditional part? If I'm willing to initiate that relationship, it means it's not based on them treating me a certain way. It's not based on them agreeing with me. It's not based on them dressing in the right way. It's not based on any of that. It's based solely upon God moving. And so I begin to initiate that relationship. And I begin to initiate it in order to show them love. That means I need to be able to see the value of each and every person. That's been a theme today. It's a sanctity of human life should be a theme. Oh, I hope, by God's grace, it's a theme of this church all the time. To talk about the importance and the value of each and every person as the image of God. And for those who are believers, they are the redeemed image of God. To be able to view another Christian in the same way that Jesus views them. Today we live in an age in which we have divisions over absolutely everything. And we have been taught that it's okay to hate the person that we're divided from. To hate the person that we disagree with. Can you imagine what that means in the church of Jesus Christ? That a person for whom Jesus Christ died, to whom Jesus looks upon with incredible love, that we look at them with antipathy? How inconsistent is that? with the Spirit of God dwelling in us. But to look at that person as a redeemed follower of Jesus Christ who disagrees with me. Which means either they're going to have to change or I will, or both at some point, right? But we don't have to worry about that right now. I can still love that individual. And I can show that love by treating them with the respect that they're due as the image of God. This goes back, uh, again, I'm calling out the congregation all the time. Uh, Rick and I had a great conversation last week. It was brief, but it was, it was profound in my life as we were just talking. And he was sharing about his father's funeral. And, uh, uh, and, and it was meaningful. And uh, to, to think of the, the words that people had to say and the reflection upon uh, the man that his father was. And that's what we do at a funeral, right? I always talk about there are three goals in a funeral. You want to glorify God, you want to honor the deceased, and you want to comfort those who live. And you want to honor the deceased. It's very important that you do that. And we know that, right? We know that. You talk well about a person who's recently died, right? I mean, it's just the, the epitome of being a cad if you don't do that. I mean, you just do this. It's just, it's common human decency. This is what we do, right? We get that. That's, that's how we relate. But the thought came to me. What if we speak to everyone in the same way that I would speak about them if I were speaking at their funeral. 
When you stand here at a funeral, you give the eulogy, which means a good word. You say what's good about that person. What if I talk to other people that same way? And that's just haunted me all week, so it made it in a sermon. Thanks. Mostly because I, I want it right here. I want to live that. Do you? Isn't that then a way that we're loving people? As I begin to treat them with honor, the honor that is due them as the image of God, that's a pretty high honor, isn't it? Yeah, they may make mistakes, but did that bother Jesus? No. Should it bother me? No. Am I a bigger judge than him? Well, yes, but shouldn't be. So I make that shift. Show them their value. I need to be purposeful. I need to reach for the goal. Rich Mullins said one time, the scary thing about God is he didn't have a plan B. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. And you know what his plan A was? Church, go make disciples. He didn't have to do that, did he? Jesus didn't have to go up to heaven. He could have stayed here on earth, right? He could have walked around. I mean, he was God. He could be fast, right? He could have gone up to each person and said, follow me, right? Right? He could have, but he didn't. And he didn't have a plan B. It's you and me. We've been called to go make disciples. We do that by evangelizing and by equipping each other. To equip each other, we're going to have to be purposeful. We're going to have to do it on purpose. And we're going to have to reach for the goal. And the goal is not perfection. It's to love God and to love people. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for the opportunity to make disciples on your behalf. And Spirit of God, we know you're the one who does it. You're the power behind it. And so we give ourselves over to you and we ask that you would do precisely that, that you would make disciples. And we commit ourselves, O oh God, to live as disciples. We commit ourselves, O oh God, to worship you. We commit ourselves to evangelize and we commit ourselves to equip. We simply ask, O oh God, that you would carry us and that you would do this for Jesus' sake. Amen.